Hey, Atari Hackers, welcome to this week's podcast episode. Unless you've been sleeping under a rock, you've probably noticed Forbes.com creeping up in most commercial queries in the last few years. And when I put their domain inside of Ahrefs, I noticed that they went from around 24 million estimated visitors in October 2020 to almost 80 million estimated today. And we all know that's Ahrefs, so you can probably multiply that number by two or three to get the real number. That is a real holdup on SEO traffic here. They almost forex their traffic in the last three years. And it's not like Forbes was not an established brand in 2020. So they've done something that's definitely right when it comes to SEO. And I was curious about it. And I know I always make cynical jokes about Falls because it's kind of funny to see them pop into every query at this point and a little bit ridiculous at the same time. But the best way to improve at SEO is to look at the winners of the current era and emulate what they do. And that's what I wanted to help you doing today. And I've been quite lucky because I've been interacting with Sean Hills, the guest of today, for a while on Twitter. He's a really good guy to follow. So I recommend you guys go and follow him. He's a really nice guy. He has seven kids. He also runs a niche slash authority website similar to the kind of size that you and I are building and growing. It's called The Grilling that.com you can go and check it out and if you actually enjoyed the episode with him i'd love to have him back to talk about what he's doing there because there's some interesting stuff we've talked about but what interested me in today's episode is the fact that sean worked for forbes for about one year inside the seo department so he saw exactly what's happening he was working in the insurance category team and he can tell us how things are working from the inside and a lot of this episode is going to be about breaking down exactly how Forbes organizes content creation, how they optimize content, what tools they use, how do they pick topics, how do they update content, etc., etc. And because Sean also runs a small website, I was able to ask him what he took away from Forbes to his website and what you can take away from Forbes to improve your website. Now to prepare this interview, I turn to social media and I ask you guys what questions you want me to ask Sean so I can make this interview as helpful as possible for you. And I got some really good questions. So I took Gary Osberg's question, for example, on the content creation process. I took Keith's question on maintaining quality while scaling content, which is definitely a big challenge for authority site owners. And I also took Cabinet Digital's questions on AI. So what is Forbes' stance on AI? How do they use it? How do they not use it? We talked about that quite a bit in the interview. But as I asked the audience this question, I also got quite a bit of salt from people, like this person asking me to ask, how do you sleep at night? And so I wanted to address that a little bit as well because there was a few of these comments. So the first thing is Sean does not own Forbes.com. He just took an SEO job, like hundreds of thousands of people have SEO jobs and he just got paid a salary and he got the opportunity to work for a big company which basically improved his CV and a lot of people would jump on this opportunity. And you realize that Google was ranking your website for every single commercial query without you having to try very hard. How many of you would not jump on that opportunity? Because I know I would if I was in this position. So while I am personally frustrated to see Forbes rank for pretty much every commercial query at this point, I think the fingers need to be pointed at Google for rigging the game towards large authority sites rather than at Forbes for taking advantage of what's given to them by Google. And that topic is also one that we talk about with Sean in the interview. How do you feel about Google rewarding Forbes so much now that you run a smaller site and you're not really working at Forbes anymore? And that was an interesting answer from him. So I'm going to stop teasing you and I'm going to be letting you listen to the interview. But one more thing before we get started. First, we are now releasing exclusive video content on YouTube. So if you're not subscribed yet, I highly recommend you head to the Authority Hacker YouTube channel, subscribe and click on the bell so that you don't miss any of the new content that we're putting out there. Second, while you're on YouTube, please thumb up this video if you're watching on YouTube now or if you're on the podcast, go there later. If this episode reaches more than 250 likes, I'll add an extra tip to my next YouTube video that I would not have included otherwise. So go ahead and smash that thumb up button. Third, if you have a question for Sean that I forgot to ask in the interview, you can ask it on the comment section below on YouTube because Sean's going to be here for a week answering your questions if you have any. All right, enough talking. Let's jump into the interview. Welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast. And now your hosts, Gail Breton and Mark Webster. Hey everyone, welcome to the Atari Hacker Podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be talking to someone who is very interesting, whose name is Sean Hill. The reason he's interesting is because he both works for Forbes, helped them with their SEO, and runs a authority site slash news site, like most people who listen to his podcast. He's seen both sides of the, the coin, basically. And I think we're going to have a pretty interesting discussion. This interview is going to be focused on how Forbes does SEO, how do things work for these big sites, and maybe what can we learn as smaller sites so that we can compete a little bit better with them. So Sean, thank you for joining the show and uh, welcome. 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. I'm quite excited actually because I always make jokes about Forbes, etc. And it's like as I was telling you before we started, it's like as like yeah, I make jokes about Forbes, but if I was Forbes, I would do exactly what they're doing with their SEO. So it's like <laughs> I'm not. It's like for sure. fair enough, you know. It's like, um, but still, it's an interesting thing. So can you tell us what your role was when you were working there? Yeah, so I was an SEO strategist. That was the title, and so a lot of the overarching strategy as well as some of the implementation and. Just kind of planning things out and making sure it gets done. I focused mainly just on the a few different insurance verticals. Okay, cool. How long have you been uh, doing this? Well, I was at Forbes for about a year, but okay. overall SEO a little over two years. So I'm still pretty yeah, new. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but like you already had an interesting experience, and the grilling that's doing quite well as a website. So I think uh, so you've proven that you definitely was the industry even in just two years. You know. <laughs> I dove head first and immersed myself and watched every podcast, every YouTube interview. I mean, everything I could learn, I just jumped in and got to work with some other really big sites before Forbes, like Market Watch and Architectural Digest, a few others like that. So yeah, I mean, I just kind of went head first and learned as much as I could as, as fast as possible. So far, so good, man. Congratulations on that. I want to jump like more into like the Forbes experience and like how things are done in there and see if we can learn anything. So I guess you were there for like a year. So you were not here at the beginning of the transition from the moment when Forbes started, went from basically being a business magazine to being the site that writes about best shoes for plantar facilities, for best whole house water filter, for best car seat covers, for best tech service, and all these other girls <laughs> that they're running for, right? So you kind of arrived in the middle of that, right? Yep. Yep. All that was already happening. And how do they present that to like people who join the team? Like, how do they present the objectives? Yeah, I mean, really, the the main goal is just to like, I, I think taking a step back, and I mentioned it earlier, is like I had a very like set categories that I was covering. I talked to other people on other teams and whatnot, but like my goal was very clear and very defined on what I was working on. So it's almost like to the point where all the other stuff doesn't matter because like all that mattered was, hey, we need to rank as high as possible for these insurance terms. And that was what my focus was on. And I think having that clarity makes it a lot easier because if you have somebody come in like, hey, your goal is to go rank for all of these terms, like best whole house water filter, best car seat covers, it's really hard to understand the SERPs for all of those. But when you're really focused, it makes it a lot easier. It's quite interesting, actually, because if you look at a company like DotDash, for example, they had about.com and they basically broke it down to many mini sites that were more specific. And it seems like Forbes is basically internally doing the same, running multiple teams across multiple verticals, but all under the same domain. Would you say that's how it works? Yeah, for sure. I think it's... Um it's structured very similarly to that. Yeah, fair enough. It's it's interesting. And it's like, I don't know which one's more successful. Like DotDash has done pretty well specializing in this. I mean, compared to what About.com was getting towards the end, it's done a lot better. But obviously Forbes is, is kind of killing it now, going from 25 million visitors at the end of 2020 to over 80 million today, according to Ahrefs. So you can pretty much triple that number probably. Um, and uh, and that will give you more or less an idea of what they're doing. And it's the same brand. It's like Forbes was already big in 2020. It's not like anything changed back then. So does that make you run, want to run your kind of like uh, the grilling data or something like more on a category level and almost like break it down like does it does it change your perception of like running a site that gets larger as a small publisher a hundred percent like i i haven't implemented that yet because that's mainly been me and working with one writer and i just didn't change that much but like i've recently started another site that's completely different and that's exactly how i started like hey this one person you're responsible just for this one category that's all you work on and it makes internal linking a lot easier. It makes building backlinks and building authority a lot easier, as well as just, I mean, for Google, it's just better in my opinion. So yeah, I've definitely learned that from them. Fair enough. It's actually something we did as well when we run uh, one of our sites. It's like we literally run, like we had like a pretty well broad site in the software category, but each category ran on its own with a completely different team. And I feel like, yeah, it's like, it's almost like running a niche site is easier because you can really focus on that. And then eventually you just like, if you enlarge, you kind of lose track of what's happening and you, you're unable to compete. So I guess that's what's happening. Okay. 
Let's talk about the SEO process that happened. In, so like, let's say you were working in the insurance sub-niche, right? That's what you were doing at Forbes. Did you guys plan the content in hubs? Like how did, how did content planning go when you, as far as like keyword research, topic research, et cetera, like, did you work page by page? Did you plan whole hubs? Like how far ahead did you plan? Like what happened? Yeah. Most of the planning is quarterly is what we were doing and trying to plan it out that way. But there's always going to be some hiccups that get in the way. So you've got to be somewhat flexible with that. But yeah, we definitely did it kind of by hub and by page. It just depends on the type of content that it was. And it's so funny that you say that like new content creation was such a small piece of like the day to day um, that we worked on. Like almost all of our time was spent working on existing content. Because like you said, it did go from more like magazine editorial quality to now trying to rank for SEO terms and make money from that. So things just, they had to change a little bit. So a lot of maintenance and fixing things or, you know, optimizing, I guess. And yeah, cleaning up just old stuff and making sure internal links were on point. All the maintenance side that comes with SEO was how most of the time was spent. But as far as planning new content, yeah, I mean, we would go kind of, category got by category like hey what do content gaps are there what new things do we want to cover that no one else is covering same type of thing okay so you're still looking at the competition you're Forbes and you're like you're still like these guys are a bit too hard to beat basically no I mean no. like if Nerd, Nerdwallet and Investopedia <laughs> okay, if they've got enough. a piece that's getting traffic then like yeah we definitely want to go okay. get that and compete with them so you would never sure. be like you'd never back off being like no we can't rank for this like it's like you don't have that problem when you're Forbes right no not at all <laughs> competitors ranking for something like yeah you just, go you just go for it. it how do you pick the competitors you're going after you just look at the big side or do you go for the smaller sites as well? It's like, how small do you go when you're false when you do your queue research? Because it's quite interesting for people who like are afraid of the upcoming competition, you know? I can't speak too much on it. I know I sent you a message before about one of your sites <laughs> to watch out because there was some competition coming. Most of the time, it's focused. They don't want to go after low search volume keywords because it's not like the ROI is not there. So at the same time, like, they started hiring and like other people to start going after some of those longer tail keywords more for topical authority and just building out the whole category. And I mean, believe it or not, I mean, there are big gaps, even with Forbes, there's just content that's not covered. And so instead of like site by site, as far as competitors, it's more like keyword by keyword. Like if a small site is ranking for a big keyword, like we're going to find it. But even some more niche ones like long tail niche keywords that aren't getting a ton of search volume maybe it's only you know four or five hundred a month and eventually those are going to get covered as well yeah i was going to ask like what's the smallest keyword you would consider basically yeah i don't know that they had an exact number especially if you could make a business case for it if there's intent there that's high enough then i don't think there's a minimum but most of the time i think it was around like three to five hundred Okay. What tools did you use actually when you worked there? Like, were you just, just using Ahrefs or is there like some kind of like super Forbes ACO tool that we don't know about powered by AI? So there's a, there's a red phone that everyone gets and you can actually just call Google. <laughs> and they just tell you right say, away. Hey, what, what keywords well, We're not number direct. one. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> and they tell you all the, all the secret. No, I mean, Ahrefs was definitely the biggest tool. Used it every day there. Still a big fan of it. I still use it every day for my site. And I mean, there's a few others, but that's the main one. I mean, we had access to SimRush and SEO Monitor and SerpStat and all these other tools, but Ahrefs was the one that was used most often. Yeah, fine. Okay. I'm just like on the enterprise level, some people might imagine that like, you know, using the same tools or there's something different or some kind of magic. You can confirm there's probably no other magic than uh, paying the inflated rates on Ahrefs now, basically. That's exactly right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, they definitely find out if you try to if two people are logged into the same email, like it was somebody's first day on the job and they didn't have their login yet. And I'm like, yeah, just use mine. They're like, no, you absolutely cannot do that. So, and that's not an HF thing. I mean, that's a good policy. To it's have also a Netflix things now, apparently. So it's like, it's not just HF. So how do you start? Like, let's say you prepared your content hub, you're working on your content. Like, do you go for the whole category in one go or do you just have like a testing phase? Like, do you go and like, because usually when we build hubs, we kind of like build the first version of it with like 10 to 20 pages maybe. And then if it does well, we expand it to like pretty much every keyword with intent. Was it the same or just Forbes like, no, we're going to rank for it. We're just doing all the keywords right away. 
That's tough. Tough to answer. Because I didn't launch any new like verticals there, but there was never a time where there was a discussion like, can we rank for yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you just go for it. Like yeah. I, I, when something is launched yeah. and you like, do they publish all the content at once or is it like dripped? Or is it just like whenever it's edited? Yeah, it's just whenever it's edited. Yeah. I think it's the kind of like content pipeline becomes the bottleneck, right? How does the planning process differ at Forbes and on your own website? There's a lot more steps to take. For my side, it's like, oh, my competitor wrote this. Like, that's a good keyword. I haven't seen that before. Like, ship it over in Trello. Like, hey, let's write this. Um, or I'll just like hop on and start writing versus there. There's like steps that it has to go through and get approved. And there's a doing the, the after it's approved, doing the content brief and getting it set up on when it's expected to come out as far as which quarter, which month who it's going to be assigned to. Mm, the red tape. There's, yeah, there's just a lot, a lot of steps to go through. Okay, it's interesting because I guess that prevents the site from being reactive. Let's say, for example, I'm thinking of the golf industry, right? We had a golf site and it's like, you know, in January, they release all the golf clubs and it's like, there are lots of breaking terms. It's like terms for reviews, et cetera, that are interesting. But it's like, you'd imagine because the, but there's so much red tape with big sites, it takes them longer to actually get out. So there's kind of an opportunity for smaller sites to just jump in early, potentially capture high click through rate or whatever uh, good uh, user metrics they can have and a few links early. And then uh, maybe links from the manufacturers, for example, early and potentially snag, like make it more difficult for big sites to take their rankings, would you say? That's yeah, correct. I think there's definitely an opportunity there. And that's really for any of the, the sites I've worked on, not just Forbes. There's not a lot of room to be, to stay on top of things really quick because of that red tape that exists. But I will say like, I know some of them have designated teams that that's, that is their job. Like, hey, let's pump out content that's probably not super high priority, but we want to rank for it. So those teams exist too. Okay. You've seen the super fast rise of the site, right? As a, in terms of SEO, etc. How do you feel personally about the way Google has rewarded the site? Not about the job you've done, but rather how Google has reacted. How does it make you feel both as the person who worked on it and the person who runs other sites? And compete against them. Exactly, right? It's like, yeah, it's conflicting yeah. for you. It is. It really is. Especially when they started going after some grill related terms. Um, <laughs> it was not fun to see them in those SERPs. The thing that I think the general public doesn't know about Forbes is when they're doing these reviews, and this is, again, just speaking to the insurance side of things, they're not ordered in process of monetization. They're not swayed by money. The editors that are there, like, take their job so seriously. Like, we can't even have meetings that talk about money with the editors at all, or who even is a partner versus who's not a partner to where all of the research that they do, which is above anything I thought it would be, it is so impeccable that they're truly like rating these providers based on who they feel is actually like best and not just who can bring in the most money for Forbes. And so that understanding that, and the, I think it just comes through in the content. I think readers understand it maybe subconsciously, like, hey, they're not pushing this product because they make more money from it. Like, this is actually the best for these reasons. So I think that's one of the reasons why it does well is people learn to trust the content and then next time they need something and they do a search and they see Forbes, even if they're not ranking number one, they're prone they to click, click on it again. Yeah. yeah, and that gives the signal to Google. I was going to ask, like, how do you think Google technically gauges that? But I guess that's through the clicks rate, probably, like the brand recognition, yep. the trust, etc. Time on page, maybe less uh, dwell time and so on, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's, uh, it's interesting when you describe that because it reminds me of how Google works. Google separates both the ads team from the search team, right? It's like they can't actually talk to each other. They're running like two independent companies so that the search team is not swayed by the ads team to influence, like based on who buys more ads or something like this. And so it's very similar in a way, like they write whatever they write. And then when they put the affiliate link, wherever it fits in the ranking or whatever, they're not really swaying that, etc. I think that's fair, honestly. And I can see how, I can see how like your Google and you're like, well, there's all these small affiliate sites that like are putting essentially the thing that pays the most on top. They essentially it's swayed by their economic interest. Not for everyone. To be honest, most sites we've run, we haven't done that. But many affiliate sites do that, let's be honest. It's the kind of like safe option for Google, I guess. Yeah. And then to that, one of the things I mentioned earlier too is like how, and you mentioned the transition from being like magazine to SEO focused and 
the things that they're able to do and why Google's rewarding it is they are kind of covering everything and taking the same approach that we do with niche sites and that you guys teach in the authority site system, like having a content hub, like what's your main piece? And then all the supporting pieces. People always talk about how they rank number one for their best content, but go look at their informational content too. It's like really well-written, really well-researched. All the internal links are there. So, I mean, I think they're just doing a great job all around from an SEO perspective. Yeah, I can say. I'm basically, they're doing, they're taking the cutting edge information in the SEO niche that used to be more exploited by smaller sites to make up for their low advantage, like, you know, inferiority in authority. And then they're putting that on one of the highest authority sites on the internet. And that kind of makes it a powerhouse. Like, is that, is that what you would say is happening? For sure. Yeah. And there's a lot of people even higher up, like at Forbes, like running this stuff. They run their own sites as well. Yeah. yeah. So they know this because they, they do it on their Makes own, sense. but or have done it in the past. Yeah. Cool. You were talking about the content creation. I kind of want to jump onto that, right? As an SEO person, what do you give to the editorial team when you've identified a piece that you want written, basically? Or like, like what, what is prepared by the SEO? Because that's going to be quite important, I think, for you who listen, to learn how to work with writers. For sure. That was another big change, is that it's no longer just editorial driven as far as what gets written onto the page as far as the topics that are covered. So the SEO team started, at least again, just for insurance, started doing the the content briefs. Like, hey, here's all the topics we want covered, the H2s. And it's more than just like an outline. It is almost like, it almost looks like a full page just with bullet points instead of words. I mean, it is, if we spent another hour on it, it would have been a whole piece of content. But it was very, very specific on exactly what we wanted. Uh, as far as the URL we wanted, the title, the H1, every H2, every H3, like what we wanted in there, if we wanted a table, if we wanted, you know, a bullet list, where we wanted internal links, like everything was laid out to where they just kind of had to fill in the blanks. Okay. I have two following questions to that. The first one is, if you give this much detailed information, it doesn't contrast a little bit with what you said about the editorial, where they just write about what they want. It's like, don't you feel like you give a bit too much direction on the SEO side or was it just different? It's different because we're not telling them which, who to talk mm -hmm. about. I see. It's more like, hey, we want the list of the best, whatever it may be. Here, we want a table, a comparison table. Here with the header, compare the best blank. Like so... We're not telling them where to put people or how to rank them, more so like the structure of the page and like the details that we want of each company. That's one thing that actually is interesting to me because it's like, I would say like our editorial process is pretty good, but we sometimes are not the best at kind of describing what the final page is going to look like. And sometimes, you know, you walk on a Google doc and you put it on a page you're like, eh, I wish it was a bit different, you know? How do you brief that? How does that work? Because actually that's something I'm interested in. Yeah, so uh, I mean, when you say like, hey, I want a table or I want, this here, it's pretty specific, like internal terms, like this isn't one, but like, let's say it's table version two here. Like, so everything is kind of labeled on what type of table or photo or infographic, whatever may be there. Uh, it's labeled. Okay, cool. So you basically have like an index of formatting elements and you mm -hmm. reference the ID of it as you do your brief, basically. Cool. Makes sense. So one thing that I've done is I spent actually quite a bit of time reading Forbes before this interview. So I could actually talk a little bit more specifically. And it's like, it's funny because I came in being quite cynical and <laughs> be like, I'm going to prove that EAT is bullshit and uh, it's all about having this high authority, etc. And then I went through pages and I realized it's actually pretty good on Forbes. <laughs> and I was like, actually, no, I can't say that because it's just not true. And I, from what I remember checking maybe a year ago, year and a half ago, it felt a lot better now the way it's presented, particularly the authors. So it's like, it's interesting because I felt like expertise was well represented, but experience was not necessarily well represented in the, in the writing style in the sense that expertise, you can take most writers, Google their name and you'll find stuff online about them that is related to the category they wrote about. Like if you pick an interior design piece, you will, they will have like a freelance writer page where you can hire them, where they say they specialize in this, they will have like a realtor license or something like this, something like that's semi-related at least, not always like one-to-one, -one, but it's pretty close, you know? Whereas maybe the, the experience, like, you know, when you write reviews on Forbes, etc., 
it feels like they've done well, good research, but it doesn't necessarily feel they've actually taken the product and used it. Is that how it works? Like how do you, like, is that the editorial structure of the site? I don't know too much about the product side of things and actually testing those mm. um, yeah, okay, on fine. the other side. There are people who have worked like in the insurance ex industry or have been writing about the insurance and learning about it for a really long time. Some of them hold licenses. Some of them don't, but they've written for other like major publications. So yeah, I mean, I think that they do, and it's probably been more intentional recently of trying to display the EAT versus just like having it be assumed because it's Forbes. Yeah, it's like they put the auto name, you can check the auto page and they put the reviewers page as well. And usually they're both related to the industry. So I was like, yeah, it's pretty good. Were you ever involved into finding content creators or they just had it and you just passed it on and they just figured it out? I didn't do anything yeah. with finding yeah, content fine. creators. So you don't really know how they find these content creators, right? Nope, cool. no idea. Just asking. In terms of on page as well, like, did you guys like do the suffer type optimization stuff in the content, try to put the keywords in there, et cetera, or you don't really bother when you're Forbes, you just, you just publish something related to the topic and you rank. Yeah. So even with like really like VIP pages that have the potential to make a ton of money, even if they're, you know, position two or three and you just need something to bump up to position one, like surfer was never used. Those type of tools were not used at all. I think there's usually enough that you can do or find on a page to improve it that don't need those tools. Fair enough. Do you use them on your site? I have in the past and then recently just tested Surfer's AI Writer. But other than that, nope. Okay, cool. So I want to talk a bit about your optimization process after because you've like alluded to it a few times. I just want to follow the interview for now. How does the editing process work? Like, how do you, like, let's say you get, you get a piece by, like, do you even get a say as the SEO person onto the content that was edited? Like, let's say the editor is done. Do you get to re-verify it and check it, check on it? And usually, oh, they just publish it and then whatever. It's just published at that point. There's no extra QA step which can be frustrating, especially if certain things like, oh, we didn't find the data for this. And so we just didn't include it. It's like, no, like just hold the piece until you get the data. But so there, you know, that that happened, but there was no, no final QA. Okay. And do you know how, like one thing that's impressive is that I agree, the editorial standards are pretty high on most pieces. And it's very impressive given the volume of content that's created. How do they do that in terms of, scaling it up and obviously it seems to be running multiple teams across multiple niches but still having that kind of like integrity that you know it feels very similar and feels from the same brand like how do they organize the editorial to achieve that yeah so each kind of category they had multiple editors and then each of those editors are editing from multiple writers and that's each category i mean in a given month just kind of looking at some of the stuff that's actually published publicly. Like you're looking at, I don't know, 20 to 50 pieces, depending on the category each month. But then they're also like anything that, again, not trying to allude to it more, but anything that's also like optimized, like that also has to go through an editorial process. So they are incredibly busy all the time. So I think that's, that's how is they're, they're just always working on stuff. Yeah, I guess the editorial guidelines are super tight as well, right? They have like full checklists against content, et cetera. Like it's like, is this, this, is this, this, is the tone like this, how these kind of words used, et cetera, right? Yep. All of that's there. Yep. But to that point too, as far as the structure as well, like there's so many different people, like there's a formatting team, which kind of blows me away. Like, yeah. So there's just so many different things, like which template do we use? Which tables do we use? Making them look good and making sure that they're all in the proper place. So there's just... There's a role for each step of the process. Specialization, right? It's like basically you have like one person that just does this all day. So they make sure it's like always the same because yep. it's the same small team doing that micro task. Basically, it's kind of like a chain, right? It's like a, it's like a factory, but for content, basically. Yeah. And to that point, when you said that, like they work with people from all around the world. When I'm sleeping, someone else is still working on the content. And when they're sleeping, I'm not working on it. Yeah. I don't know for sure if it was intentional, but... It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, they're really smart. It makes uh, sense, and, right? And to like try to out. use the time zones so that the content goes faster through the pipeline, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, it and how it like our days ended, like the end of our teammates in India is at the beginning of our day. 
and our lunchtime was the UK's end of their day. And so, yeah, actually, so it makes sense to structure your team that way so that content goes through faster. It's very interesting. Were you aware of any use of AI yet or talk about using AI in editorial yet? From the editorial team, I mean, one of the last meetings I attended before leaving, it was brought up like, hey, are we going to use this? Are we going to get rid of our writers? And at that time, they said they're not going to use AI for any editorial. Like, are freelancers using it? Are the editors using it? I have no idea. My guess is the editors aren't. Freelance writers, I think you'd be crazy not to be using AI right now. Um, from the SEO side, I mean, whether it's, you know, trying to come up with a unique angle after the main keyword to get people to click on it, uh, for title tags, coming up with better meta description, things like that. I definitely used it quite a bit for those ideas, but from the actual content, they weren't using it. Yeah, fair enough. So basically, like because they're using lots of freelancers and contributors, it's quite hard to kind of like have a tight grip on on what's happening. But I guess because the editorial process is so good, it's like even if AI is used, like it's not like low quality AI content is going to be published. It's like right. it's going to feel invisible, I guess, if it's published. It's like because it has been so polished, that kind of makes sense. And it's like I think it's smart from the organization to say we don't use AI, but we don't know what our contributors are doing. It's kind of like plausible deniability on scaling uh, on scaling content, basically. So if I was the PR team at Forbes, I would definitely do that. So pretty smart on that. So like we talked about the editorial and the content process, like what did you take from this to your own editorial process, to your own size? And what did you stay away from that you used to do at Forbes? Yeah, because most of my time was spent updating older content, I've definitely scaled back the amount of new content that I was pumping out and trying to update the pages that are actually making me the most money, um, which aren't always super obvious, especially like if people are just using Ahrefs, like my top probably three producing pages, like nobody would guess based on Ahrefs. And so once you understand that and you like have the data and you follow that kind of rabbit hole of which pages are making me the most money, that it kind of dictates like where you're spending your time. Um, and it makes it, you know, a data-driven decision versus a gut decision. And so that's definitely helped. I wish my content quality and standards were as high as theirs. So I kind of beat myself up over that because my standards are much lower. I mean, when so, you're like a smaller team, it's more difficult, right? It's yeah. like you have to make compromises. I think it's just learning how yeah. to make the right compromises, maybe. And it's like, mm -hmm. fine, what has the less? But like, it's like you can't, you can't with uh, with the resources you have as a small publisher, I guess. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a another thing too is what you said about them being polished and everyone kind of specializes in things is taking a step back and realizing like, it. I don't have to be an expert at everything. I think that's helped me a lot. So I've I've hired out help where before I was trying to do everything on my own and, you know, being able to justify, you know, paying for an expert because they're better at it and they're going to be quicker at it than somebody who's brand new just learning. So what did you hire for, for example? Like, do you have an example for a role that you did that for? Yes, like I did a whole redesign uh, of the site, moving it off of Elementor. Um, Good job. So, <laughs> <fixed. laughs> so that is something I feel like I could have done. It just would have taken me a long time. I would have broken way more things, which I did break stuff early on. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to stop and hire this out. Same thing with some social media stuff. I'm like, I'm pretty good at like building communities with social media. I'm not so good at turning those communities into monetization or forms of traffic. And so I think that's a whole new skill set. And I've started to kind of learn there, but you know, I've partnered up with some people who are helping with that. Very cool. I think, I uh, definitely think it's like something that, uh, something uh, maybe at some point we'll make another podcast talking about that because that whole topic I think is super interesting. You were mentioning earlier that Forbes starting go started going after some of the keywords you're going after for, or like getting into the niche that you are in with uh, your own site. How can you compete as a small site owner against like huge website coming into your space with all their authority and all their resources. Like how do you, how hopeful are you to keep getting a good amount of traffic and how do you practically compete? I think that's a great question. I think you've got to do more and we kind of alluded to it earlier, do more with the topical authority. Like I have to cover even more stuff than they cover, cover the topics that they will never write about. But you also, you can't just write better content to compete against authority sites. You have to build authority. You have to build links. 
they're beating you because they have better links, then go get good links. <laughs> like, so I think that's, that's one of the, the things um, that I focused on. And I've gotten some really good links, including one from Forbes that I earned after leaving. And then, you know, other really big sites, like I'll be in a magazine this month for AARP, like a print magazine. Last time that that happened, I was in Parade Magazine. I saw a huge spike the next day. So I think doing all of those little things and getting your name out there and building a brand is how you compete against brands. They're they're winning. So you have to like do what's working. <laughs> I also think like what you can do is you can be a niche specialist on other platforms. Like you can generate. So like, for example, for me, like one indicator, of like how well branded the site is, is how many brand searches for the name of the site there is per month, right? It's just like, it's very mm -hmm. simple. Or like checking search console or something like this. And it's like, you get that not by writing SEO articles. You get that, like, it's quite rare that people find a random list post that you made purely for SEO. And like, oh my God, this list post was awesome. Let me re-Google that site. Like quite rare, right? Usually you're quite utilitarian as a piece of content. It's more like, You've engaged with people on social media. They found like a cool reel of you on Instagram. They've engaged with a YouTube video, et cetera. And then they go and check it out. And so that builds these brand signals, which I think like people are not going to search for Forbes for barbecue keywords, for example. Or they will bump mm -hmm. into it on search. But would you agree? Yeah, for sure. And to that point, like the only type of videos that I've done on social media are around recipes. But I don't write about recipes on the site very often. One, because they take a ton of time. I'm not good at photos. Like, I just don't really like doing them. But like making quick shorts with those, like it's really easy to set up a tripod, just press record and then chop it up later. And so I get a couple hundred people a month, like in GSC, like impressions and clicks from people typing in the grilling dad recipes, which is, it just like blows my mind because I just don't have that many on my site. Exactly. But it shows that what I was talking about, like people find you on Instagram Reels or on Shorts yeah. or something like this, and they just go on that. And it's like, that's why it's like, it's one thing I like tweeted uh, like this last week, I think, which is like, sometimes the best way to grow your SEO is to not focus on SEO. It's like, I really feel like it's like the, the way that like you can become that niche special. I mean, like Kevin for gardening, for Kevin for Epic Gardening, like you become that niche specialist and then you have a chance, I would say, I guess the big side. It doesn't mean they won't take some keywords from you, et cetera, but I think, I think you stand a chance. I want to talk about your content update process now because you, you kept bragging about it and I really want to know how this works now. So how did you, like you say it was most of your work at Forbes, like did you have like some kind of checklist? How did you identify the pieces that need rework? Give me a high level overview of the process. Yeah, I think that is the part of the magic is knowing which pages to work on and which ones need it. And that comes down to being able to analyze data, looking at trends and looking at GSC, like, are you losing impressions for certain keywords on a page? Is it like justified? Should you be losing those? Are you dropping rank for certain ones? Do they matter to the bottom line? And if not, like that's a lower priority. And if it does, well, that's higher priority. So you start to identify those really quickly and you have, it's not, they didn't call them VIP pages at Forbes. It's just what I call them. But you identify your VIP pages and those are the ones that are going to make you the most money. And the 80-20 rule exists. Previous job, it was like even more extreme. It was like 2% of the pages made 93% of the money, which was just insane. But like the 80-20 rule is legit. Like what 20% of content is generating the 80% of revenue and what can we do to focus on those? So you're constantly looking at those. And I think I've had conversations with other people and it surprised them. There are some pieces of content that get touched every single day. Some are a few times a week. Some are just once a week, once a month, once a quarter. There are no VIP pages that aren't getting touched at least like quarterly. But there are some where you're like fighting and it's just those little micro signals, if you will, like all the big things are checked off. Everyone's kind of equal. So now it's down to micro signals and who can do the best job of having the most of those to switch from position two to position one. Let's go back a little bit. Like you identify these by basically looking at revenue per page. You have some kind of tracking. So on an affiliate site, maybe you have a tracking ID that allows you to track back to that page. On Forbes, I'm sure they have a little bit more advanced analytics than that. Uh, <laughs> and you can probably identify on a link level where you are. And I guess when you have VIP pages, even on a small affiliate site, we've always said that. It's like, start with one affiliate ID per page, then on your top, 15 pages have one affiliate ID per link. 
So you get to know which link on the page actually generates the most. Is that how you identify your top earning pages, basically? On my site, using Lasso does that. Like, yeah, in analytics, it tells you which buttons get clicked on the most. So it makes it like super easy. It was similar. I think you would be most people in SEO would be really surprised at the lack of like granularity that Forbes had. Okay. It was, it was almost, to be honest, it was kind of fresh. Like, okay. like the, you're telling me to increase the revenue, but you won't. T- but you don't even know what makes money. <laughs> yeah, but, but we don't have the tracking set up on this. So okay. yeah, that part was kind of frustrating. But I mean, there are ways you can kind of back into and it just takes more work. Do you think Forbes has not yet switched to GA4? They're also waiting till the last day. Yeah. When I was there, we were still not on GA4. <laughs> okay. So it's not just us. Okay. No, no, I think it's everyone. Nobody wants okay. it. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Hopefully they pick up that red phone and call Google and say, hey, cancel yeah, that. Yeah, GA4 they can do thing. that, right? So yeah. if Forbes calls them, do they cancel GA4? I hope so. Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay. um, but yeah, to that, I mean, once you've identified your VIP pages, then you just start to understand those more, like where rank is, like you understand the SERP more as well. And there are certain tools um, that are out there as well as you can just like manually do it which was also a process. I'm sorry, certain tools? What tools? <laughs> I know, I know. Tell I me, tell Listen, me. <laughs> this is one that I, I promise I will tell you, but I cannot tell you on a recorded oh, call. Okay, fine. Because it's not the purpose of the tool. Mm, and I don't want them okay. to charge more money because it can be used for SEO. All right. All right. I mean, but you, other people can build podcast. it. Like, listen, I'll tell somebody right, right now. Okay, fine. I'll just, I'll say it so everyone can have it. It's called Versionista. <laughs> the okay. main purpose of the tool is to monitor like if security on your own site, like did somebody change something, somebody added a link, you can like change it. You can put in your competitor sites there and it crawls them and it alerts you if anything was changed. So if I'm competing against authority hackers and you guys made an update to your best affiliate networks page, I get an alert. I can see side by side, the old version, the new version. I see exactly what you changed. One, I get to learn from an SEO perspective, how did that actually impact the SERP? But also like, you're not going to have information gain anymore because I'm going to go cover what you just added. So you lose your information gain. So it's like, yeah, there's like a lot of like, you stick to things that are there. You're kind yeah. of like sticking to them. They can't yeah. get a competitive advantage and then you can work on your own competitive advantage and they might not monitor as well as you. And over time you win, right? Would that be the approach? Yep. Someone needs to build something like that, but coupled with a rank tracker, because I want to see my competitors' changes and I want to see what it did to their rankings in one interface. You know, like that's what I want to see. So it's like, uh, if you want to make a bunch of money, build that tool, please. Yeah, I'll buy it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That's a good one. So is that all you do? Like you just like basically compare yourself to other pages and you just duplicate everything they have. Like how much originality do you put in your pages? I think that, so to that point, like you don't want your competitors to have information gain. So if it's actually valuable, like you want to cover it, but you want to have it. So you have to have that extra creativity and niche knowledge to know what to cover and what's important. So I think that's where kind of the expertise comes in as well and like knowing what to cover. So yeah, I mean, you, you kind of have to match, but you also want to exceed what's already there. How do you go through the page? You literally like, how do you, you just take notes, you just have the two pages side by side and you just take notes on like everything they have that you might not have. Is that is that like a good old note-taking process or is there like something a little bit more elaborate here? Yeah, I mean, if I'm comparing like a single page, I'm going to go look at probably the top three to five ranking pages and what are they covering? What am I not covering? Where's the content gap on a page to page basis? But also like the keyword gap tool, like the Ahrefs has comparing two pages that are trying to rank for the same main term. There's a lot of secondary keywords you can go pick up pretty quickly. Okay. One thing I like to do um, for this, I don't think it's going to be as good as manual, but if you want to do a quick and easy version of this, I use Bing because Bing can crawl at least the index pages. Like they have access to the index of Bing and you have ChatGPT attached to it, basically like you have ChatGPT4. So you can say, what are the topics on this page that are not covered on this page? And you put your page and it will at least give you an idea of where to dig and where to start to research that. So it's like, you know, AI is not perfect, right? It's like, it's an it's more of an 80-20 than, than that. So it's like, for very, very competitive subs, I don't think it's sufficient. But for if you wanted like a, a fast version of that, it's a, it's actually pretty decent, much better than ChatGPT with browsing, which is absolute trash. So not recommended, but Bing is actually pretty good. So I would recommend yeah. people check that out. For sure. And just to that point too, like I wouldn't go through that process of that in-depth type of optimization if it weren't for 
you know, like a VIP page that's going to make yeah, a lot yeah. of money. It needs to be worth your time, basically, because it, it takes a long time, I imagine. So like most of your time, do you have like a checklist otherwise? Like do you like for your own page, like do you just like, or you just compare to other pages? Yeah, I mean, there's kind of a checklist. I don't think it was like formalized though. That's more of like a, and each individual kind of had their own thing that they're looking for. Okay, I have a, an interesting question for you. Let's say you have a page that ranks number one, but you know is obviously outdated. Do you update it or not? If it's factually incorrect, yeah. Let's say, for example, you're covering last year's model of uh, of a grill. There's a new version that's out that, like, you probably like it's factually incorrect, but the old product's still probably okay. For example, if it's just <laughs> that, you, no, like, I'm not no, gonna touch exactly. it. <laughs> so that's the thing. It's like because that's the thing with like the information gain. Quite often, you're performing well on a page that is not that factually correct, and it's like the question is like. Do I gamble my rankings to be factually correct and have an information gain, or do I wait until that page goes down to stop touching it? That's pretty much like what I'm trying to understand here. Yeah, I think that you could do some internal things, especially for products where like, hey, there's a like adding a link, there's a newer version of this model, read our review here with an internal link to where you kind of get that and you've got the new keyword seated in there and you're leading readers to the right place. So you're still doing your job. Okay. Yeah. So basically you do tiny changes, like as little as you can so that you don't disturb the rankings because you know how it works sometimes. It's like, I'm getting frustrated with Google these days because it's funny. Like I'll tell you, I'm going to tell you like, for a while we try to create like the absolute best guys possible, like actual insights, etc. But quite often your expertise kind of like clashes with the consensus. So for example, keyword, how to start a blog. Everyone's going to recommend Bluehost. Am I going to recommend Bluehost? No fucking way. Uh, it's like, <laughs> yeah. like no, like, I will not do that. And so, but the thing is like, it's search intent at this point. Literally everyone says it because that's what pays the most. And mm -hmm. it's like, I find my super in-depth guys like at this point being outranked by pretty average SEO articles written by freelance writers. And then when I redirect the, my, my guy that got all the links because the industry liked it to the SEO optimized page, but I might take the number one ranking, for example. And it's like, I find this extremely frustrating. So it's like, where do you see that limit of like SEO optimization against true expertise? And does that apply to Forbes? And does that apply to your site? Like, because probably they're different, you know? Yeah, for sure. They're, they are a little different. And that's something working on previous sites that we actually looked at, like, hey, we're covering five providers here. These other two that everyone mentions suck and they should not be talked about, but you kind of have to include them. So they were just kind of included down at the bottom. So I think there's a an SEO perspective, but then also the other way. I think you can mention Bluehost and like, hey, Bluehost is recommended by a lot of people. Here's why we don't like them. So that way you kind of get both in there, your opinion is, and expertise, as well as covering the consensus. But I think that the consensus will have to almost go away. Like if Google wants to defeat like just AI churned content, because that's all AI can do is just go with the consensus. Exactly. So Google has to kill search intent eventually, right? I mean, at least make it a lot less powerful, I believe. Because otherwise it's like, yeah, it's like the AI is excellent at that. At just like like respinning exactly what's been said before. And we end up with serfs with 10 times the same article. Does Forbes take this into consideration, like search intent, consensus, et cetera? Or do they really truly write what they think is the best as editors? Like, is there, is there some SEO considerations there? As far as the companies mentioned, no. Um, there aren't, but there may like on some pages at the bottom, like other resources that may mention other <laughs> service providers' names just to have their name on there. So you're kind of trying to do that. So you're basically the editor writes the fully ethical article that they truly believe in and you're the SEO team and then you just come back and be like, oh, we're missing this topic. Let's just insert a little comment at the end to mention these guys. Is the, basically, that's how it works, right? And eventually yeah. you kind of get the best of both worlds. Yeah, interesting. I think it's it's quite interesting and, and I agree. I think search intent uh, is too powerful in the world of AI and uh, Google Google is going to have to change. And I think it's going to change probably the way, um, the way some of the big sites rank because now it's kind of like, I feel like a lot of SEO has been like quote unquote figured out in its current iteration, you know? And it's like, you know what the page generally needs to look like. And it's like, it's, it's basically an authority game plus micro optimization on the page, but like everyone has more or less the same page. And if Google wants to bring some diversity back, they're going to have to shake the game a little bit more than, the, than they have recently. And it's like, 
it feels a lot like pre-Pandava right now for me. Like for having mm -hmm. done SEO for now like 10 years plus, it's like, that's how it felt before Panda. You had a site called Isa in Article that used to rank for absolutely everything with trash content. Much worse than what's on Forbes today, by the way. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not making the comparison, but I'm just saying few sites were taking lots of uh, subs and that's usually uh, before a big shakeup. We'll see what happens. Anyway, is there any link building going on with Forbes that you're aware of? Or did you rely on the brand? Link building. Yeah, there is, but it's not like traditional link building. Like I thought it's, they kind of take a different approach. And again, I mean, this is just speaking like to what is publicly out there. Just want to make that clear. This, this isn't like an insider info, but the thing, like if you go look at Ahrefs, the pages that have the most links are more like PR pieces, statistics pages that people talk about that you should do where they write those and they do a really good job. They're really well researched. They actually go and do their own surveys as well as using statistics that are out there and then they pitch those out and they make a really good story out of it and then using those to internally link to the money pages is more i, I was gonna say like how is the internal strategy. linking working like yeah. was it a big part of your job as well since you talked about re-optimization were you like trying to rebalance internal links and and essentially try to sway the pages that you care about for sure big impact yeah yeah and did a pretty big study on anchor text variations and for other sites and how often they vary versus not. And what I found was typically people who vary their keywords the least amount and it's more keyword focused for their internal links usually win. I agree. You can spam anchor text quite heavily in internal links, not like yep. external links, not so much, but internal links. Yeah, you can go crazy. 100% agree with you. Like I always go at least partial match with the, for the keyword I want to rank for. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. just speaking to that, like part of the internal link audit process that I went through was just looking at, you know, what anchors are pointing to these pages and you can start to see how Google could get confused. Like if we're using a certain keyword, like let's just say the word keyboard and that's the anchor text and half of the time it's going to my best keyboards page and the other half it's going to my what is a keyboards page. Well, which page do I want to rank for the word keyword? Like probably the one that's going to make me money. So I should probably stop sending that anchor to my what is page. It's, yeah, it's just making sure that it is as like clear as possible to Google, as well as the user, like what to expect next with your anchors. Did, did you do a lot of redirects as well? Like, did you kill content pages and just make them redirect to like commercial pages, for example? Not necessarily just redirect to commercial pages, but try to redirect to the pages that made the most sense. So if it was like a statistics page that's outdated, it would just go to the new version of that page. So not always just, yeah, to commercial, but yeah, there was... Definitely a um, like a quarterly process of checking which pages should be killed, which ones should be redirected. Okay, interesting. Like one thing that I've found quite often is that you can kind of like news bait on a topic. Let's say, for example, imagine we find that a special, a special type of charcoal is can cause cancer if you grill above a certain temperature and becomes a news story. And then you kind of make like a piece that's like a more in-depth than what the news would do. Probably would collect a bunch of links from when the news covered that story. Let's say this piece has 100 link domains. So let's say this piece gets like 100 link domains. When the story is kind of like over, it's really not, not important to have this piece anymore. Nobody checks it, etc. You have that dead page with 100 link domains and you redirect it to your best charcoal for grilling page, for example. It's like, it's relevant still to have these links and they tend to boost um, your rankings quite a lot for commercial pages. So I kind of like see newsjacking as a way to invest in your future link building in a way. Like anything like that that you've done on your site or you've done at Forbes? So, I mean, definitely something considered and sometimes it does make the most sense to send those to the commercial pages. So definitely something we've done. I just haven't done too much like link building in that sense on my site um, where I'm doing any type of news pages to do it. So like we talked about different parts, et cetera. Is that something we, yeah, you learned at Forbes that gave you kind of like a competitive advantage in terms of growing your site that you feel like most people are ignoring in the industry now? The things I learned the most were more about like scaling and specializing in a particular skill. I wouldn't say too much from an SEO perspective that would give like a competitive advantage um, compared to information that's already out there publicly. Oh, well, I guess maybe this is the thing and, and it's executing, right? Like we all have, like there, there is as much as people want to argue that there's not, like there's a finite amount of SEO knowledge that you need to have to rank a page. Like beyond that, you don't need to know. And the issue is people just don't execute. And so that's, that's the thing is they execute really well and 
things get pushed. I mean, you're working with the team and, you know, quick shout out to, you know, Emily, Jack and Kyle that I worked with, the, the team I work with the most at Forbes. They were awesome to work with and you hold each other accountable and you just make sure that all of those best practices actually get implemented across the pages. So I think that's a competitive advantage. I think you're right. It's like people like to theorize more about SEO than they like doing SEO sometimes. I mean, I guess we might be contributing to that with our content. Um, so it's like, sorry about that. But it's true. It's like, I think the best way to know is to just get started. And just like this tool you gave, like this... Um, What's the name? Versionista is a really good tool, for example, to get started and just like observe any like, you know, it's like I, I can see myself setting that up for like very, very competitive niches. Like let's set that up for node wallet. Let's set that up for the points guy, etc. And then get insights from that and, and learn. It's like, I think Ahrefs still has it on their homepage. So I, I gave them shit earlier. I'm going to say something great about them now, which is that you tend to learn more about SEO by putting a bunch of sites in Ahrefs than you, than you do by uh, reading SEO blogs, actually. And so a uh, similar thing. And I think you're right. It's like, it's just about getting started. Yeah, for sure. And if anybody doesn't want to pay for a tool, just Google best home warranty. And like, I didn't work on that at Forbes. So, but it's like incredibly competitive, really high, like payout per lead. And those pages are getting touched like every day. And it's like several different media sites. And it, it almost changes the order daily in the, on that SERP. So it's uh, you can go and start watching, like just grab a screen cap of the entire page, go the next day, do it again. And yeah, and, I mean, you could do it yourself that way or like use Bing, right? Like you said. So what do they touch up when they touch up this page? Like they touch up, they touch up the actual product descriptions and, and features and stuff like that. Like they have alerts for when the product updates and they change something there or what else do they touch up? Sometimes it's like minor little tweak. Like, hey, should this, is this header like higher user intent and we're going to keep people on the page longer so we're going to move it up higher? Should we word this slightly differently? Should it, instead of being a question, should it be a statement to show authority versus making it seem like we're asking the question, we're going to prove that we know the answer. There's like so many like small little details. Somebody might add an FAQ and then you see all other like nine pages on page one magically add the same FAQ the next day. There's just like, it's just really competitive. Cool. It's super interesting. That's usually how I find a lot of my case studies. I just Google very competitive keywords, look at what people are doing, dig into it and, and learn something and find something that people didn't talk about before. So yeah, really cool tip. Anything that you wanted to talk about in this podcast that we haven't talked about or that I missed, I should have talked about and I was a bad interviewer. I don't think so. I mean, I think we've covered quite a bit, but if there's anything else on your mind, I mean, let me know. Even if it's after this, if you have questions that pop up, let me know. I try to be an open book. There's only- Yeah, thanks for that. That's the other pretty than much like, it. Yeah, yeah other than saying future strategies or partners and content, I think, at least I think I'm allowed to share. It's just about anything else. I guess <laughs> I'll find not, out. <laughs> if, you're not, if you're not, let me know. We'll take this down, okay? But uh, yeah. but uh, thank you, uh, thank you for sharing all that because I don't think like people have like people see the site in the sales, but don't necessarily understand how it works behind the scenes. And and in general, like any success story, and I think this is a true SEO success story. I really don't think the brand Forbes got better between the moment was at, where it was at 20 million visits to 80 million, so forex. Forex SEO on the side of that side is like definitely something special. And I think it's very interesting to see how this works because it makes me think of how I can change the things I'm going to do on my site, even though I'm not going to copy exactly what Forbes does. I don't have the amount of resources they have, etc. It gives me ideas like this uh, touching up on like every day on some pages, etc. This level of detail, the separation of the editorial team and the monetization team to keep this kind of like straight editorial line that is not biased by monetization, etc. The way they do their EEAT, the way they like, it's really interesting. Go find authors and Forbes and Google them and you will see they all have something interesting online about them. I think that's true EAT. That's something you can verify on other sites. So yeah, thanks for that, Sean. Thanks for everything. Where can people follow you if they want to know more about you and uh, listen more about all the stories you have building sites and working at Forbes? Yeah, Twitter. Twitter's the place to be. That's really the only place that I stay up to date. And that's at 
Sean Hill, but without the vowel. So S-H-W-N-H-L-L. Um, and yeah, I mean, one, one last thing kind of to the same point is I think that the understanding the finite, the things you need to know about SEO and then having the teams and the specialization, like those are really important factors for success, but like you can do those things on your own. Like if you're trying to build your own niche site, like there aren't secrets that these big sites have. They've just, they're using the same SEO strategies that you know about. They're just executing extremely consistently for a long period of time. I mean, Forbes has been around for over a hundred years. Like it's hard to compete against that type of authority, but you can build that authority. It's just going to take a lot of time. A hundred years, you think, or a little bit less? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you can expedite it because of the internet. <laughs> okay, good. Good to know. Yeah, and yeah, I think you can what, be... That's what links do, though. Like, hey, they yeah. use Forbes <laughs> branding of a hundred years and say, hey, this site's reputable by getting a link from them. Yeah, and but I think what also you can do is you can become this kind of like niche specialist, right? It's like, and it's like, I just can't see, I think Google has been swayed a little too much towards big sites these days. Uh, we've seen that, that's what's happening. It has come back and forth throughout history, right? It's like, it's not always like that. It, it is definitely the case right now, but it's like, I'm pretty sure, like people are not very happy with Google results right now. Go on Reddit and see what people say, etc. You will see. And I think that my perception is that they're going to, implement the search rater guidelines as a ranking factor powered by an AI agent. So mm. an AI agent acts as a human quality rater, answers these kind of like high level questions like, you know, would I put my credit card number on this site? Uh, does, does this person has first hand experience, etc. and kind of like fill a grid. And then that's going to become kind of a ranking factor. It's just a prediction at this point. I can't say there's anything that backs this up or anything. It's probably not happening. But the evolution of AI to me, it makes more sense that way than slamming a bunch of uh, shitty content on top of the subs. Um, and so we'll see how that goes. But like, still, super interesting interview, Sean. I'm not going to talk anymore. Thanks for everything. And if you guys enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, ask questions. Would you answer the questions in the comment on YouTube for a week maybe or something? Yeah, sure. Awesome. Then Sean's going to be in the comment, guys. If you want to ask him a question, comment it on the YouTube video. And we'll see you for the next episode. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me.